Um, the first thing I want to remind you of is that Concert with a Conscience is something that we do regularly. It's a, it's a great night. It's, uh, it's going to be in November, November 16th, and it'll be an opportunity for you and uh, one or two or 15 others. Our life group usually goes every year, but uh, yeah, this year, is it, at the, is it at the OSU thing again? Sparrow. It's at Sparrow. You know, that's all I need to say because I have no idea where that is. So it's at Sparrow. And uh, want you to go to it because not only is it a great evening of great music, but it also is an opportunity for you to support um, this uh, event, which actually goes to help with mission stuff uh, with our people that go on mission trips all over the place. So want you to be aware of that. The second thing is, as you know, Harvest Carnival comes up at the end of October every year. And so as you're leaving, you'll notice that there'll be like a compassion wall uh, that's put designed in, in, intentionally right there so that as we go in and come out of worshiping God, that we're asking a question, God, is there a responsibility that you want me to take on in light of the difficulties that exist in the world? And so we really do want, don't mind making it a little bit of an inconvenient traffic flow. Um, sorry if poverty got in your way this morning getting into the room kind of a scenario, right? We really want to be able to say, we want to deal with these things. We wanna, we wanna pray for these people. We wanna prayerfully consider whether or not sponsoring these children and being involved uh, with God's church work down in the Dominican Republic is a part of who we are. So that's, that's exactly what is going on and want you to be aware of that. But if you go past the compassion wall, you'll notice that there is a wall uh, against, well, there is a back wall in our lobby which has a number of our little cards that describe specifically some items that you could buy that you could give that would help um, kind of take care of a lot of the, uh, just the resources that are needed to pull off our Harvest Carnival. So um, if you could be aware of that, that would be great. Why don't we turn our direction to the slides before we jump into our message this morning. Here's what you need to know as we continue our story this week. Over the last few weeks, we've seen how the northern kingdom of Israel consistently rebelled against Yahweh and his prophets. Because of their unrepentant hearts, God sent the nation of Assyria to conquer and exile the people of Israel in the year 722 BC, leaving behind only the southern kingdom of Judah. Unlike Israel, God did not always have idolatrous kings. A handful of them sought to return to the covenant they made with Yahweh, Unfortunately, these good kings were too few and far between to have much lasting impact. And like her sister to the north, Judah would abandon her commitment to God. So God sent his prophets to call her back. Around the year 740 BC, while Hosea was still prophesying in Israel, God called a young man named Isaiah to speak to the people of Judah. Isaiah's ministry would last about 60 years and during that time, he faithfully preached against idolatry, against injustice, and against trusting in human strength rather than God's power. But because God's people refused to listen, Isaiah also predicted a day when, like Israel before her, Judah would be conquered and carried off to exile. Fortunately, his prophecies didn't end there. One day, Isaiah said, God would cleanse his people of all their sins, and he was going to do it in a very unexpected way. God working in an unexpected way. Uh, maybe you didn't expect the service today to start with a message. We're talking about something more than just that kind of a surprise. Ordinarily, um, when we wake up on a Monday morning and we turn on the news, like we did this past week, and you're just shocked. I just can't believe that happened. Really what we probably mean to say is, I just can't believe that happened again, right? I remember watching the events of 9-11 unfold, and as the shock of the initial moment uh, just kind of began to settle in, I remember thinking to myself, I wonder where I'll be when the next 9-11 kind of thing happens. I wonder what, I wonder what it'll mean. I wonder who, what, which families will be, would change forever. What kind of policies or solutions we'll talk about or complain about. And uh, that, can be, that can be difficult to deal with. 
I had someone email me just this past week. Actually, it was a text. They texted me just this past week. They were describing an injustice that had been done on someone that they cared for. And this injustice that was done was actually done by um, a family member. A family member robbed another family member. And, and, and the bottom of this text basically said, can you believe that things like this happen? And maybe because Monday was just still so fresh. Like my gut response was like, yes. Like I'm not surprised. Like I'm not surprised at all. I'm maybe, you know what? I'm probably more surprised that you're surprised that stuff like that happens. But then the more that I thought about it, and maybe Isaiah 53 was still kind of just resonating in my mind. I think what I'm more surprised about, if you really push me, is just how good God is in spite of just how incredibly messed up we are. And how his goodness just keeps flowing and keeps like rolling us over and over and over. It just keeps coming like the tide. It just keeps, keeps coming. And I just think to myself, like that's what Isaiah is going to be teaching us today. And so I want you to, you know, we're going to be spending most of our time in Isaiah 53, but go to Isaiah chapter one. I want you to see this text because there's a lot of questions and I, I, I even encourage you to ask great questions, but just remember who you are in comparison to God when you ask questions. Just remember that you're not on the same level, you're not on the same plane as him. And so when we ask very legitimate, very heart-searching, honest, reflective questions, I think it's good for us to allow his word to speak over us. And that's again why I'm surprised at the number of invitations that the Bible gives, where the Bible like calls us into like that you and I can have a conversation with God. And so one of the most interesting, one of the most compelling that I want to label as the unreasonableness of our redemption. Like in light of just how messed up, I don't need Mondays to happen. I don't need another Tuesday in September to happen. Like I don't need any of that. Like I know the brokenness in me. I know the people that I have hurt. And God's redemption for me, when I'm, if I'm going to be brutally honest, seems like unreasonable. Like, what do I owe you for this? Like, what do I got to do to get your attention on this? And the answer is, in many ways, nothing and nothing. It doesn't make sense. Like, God, I just don't get it. I think that's why a lot of us really wrestle with, how could God forgive me? It's because you've thought through it, and it just doesn't make sense. The unreasonableness of our redemption. God says this in Isaiah 118. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet. So not like mostly white with a reddish hue. That's how we'll describe it, right? More of like a, an off-white in like a pinkish, reddish direction. That's your sin, right? No, the Bible doesn't like hold back. The Bible says what? Though your sins be like scarlet, they'll be white as snow. And though they're red like crimson, they'll become like wool. Hmm, let me think about that. Um, like everything is going to be okay. Like I can regain like my purity, I can regain my innocence. That doesn't, I don't, you can't do that actually. How do you regain innocence? How do you, how do you somehow get back the purity that you've wasted? How do you get that back? Like that, I'm sorry God, that doesn't make sense and yet God persists. And that's why we really wanna have communion as a response to Isaiah 53 this morning. And then we want to have some worship as a response to what we've just done. And then we're going to have a young man named Jonathan from the Dominican Republic give us a living example of redemption as a response to what we are doing here today. Isaiah 53, by Isaiah 53, the surprise of redemption. And so here it comes to us this morning through the years, um, Isaiah preaching a message to a group of people who are rebelling against God. They are idolatrous. They do not care about social justice. They care about social injustice. And Isaiah is reminding them, you have failed God. Check. God is going to punish you. Check. 
You need to repent and return to the covenant that your forefathers made with God at Mount Sinai. Okay, and then will everything be fine? And then the Isaiah prophet, the prophet Isaiah, continues to preach. And and this is where the gospel fits into that prophet-king dynamic. Because God doesn't just say, oh, let's just look back at our wedding day. Let's just look back at how good it used to be. And and we'll kind of stir up within our hearts nostalgia and thoughts of love and thoughts of the way that it used to be. Now God says that's not going to fix you. Don't want us to look back. I actually want us to look forward. And even when we look back at Mount Sinai, it's because that I'm doing something that has a picture of another hill um, in in which I will come and I will actually truly solve the world's problems. Are you ready? What the Bible actually teaches is that as important as our repentance and our obedience to God is, and it is, it does not fix us without God first making a way in which he himself is our savior and our redeemer. And that's the surprise. Because we have become so convinced that we can manage, that we can fix, that by our efforts or our good intentions, that somehow we can close the gap. Like, we can get almost there. I can get almost there. And all I need is a push. Okay, maybe not that close. I can get almost there. And I just need a good shove. No. There is, no, there is no push or shove or, or pull capable of getting us into back right relationship with God. And what has to happen is something that is not just surprising. From a human perspective, it is unreasonable. And I guess that's why we sing Amazing Grace. And not, I sat down and I considered it and it kind of makes sense to me, Grace. Isaiah 53, I'm going to reading, be reading a bunch of this text today. Listen to this. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom the arm of the Lord has been revealed? And now it's going to, be, to begin describing, Isaiah is this one. And I, and I don't even think he, Isaiah does not fully understand what's happening. It's like he's seeing something that is coming, but he cannot fully understand it yet. For he, no, no, I just, if you don't mind, I'm just going to kind of say, guess who he is? Guess who he is? It's Jesus. Okay? It's Jesus. For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground, and he had no form of majesty that we should look at him. There was no beauty that we would desire him. Like Jesus just wasn't the best looking, and he wasn't the smartest, and he wasn't, although he was all-knowing, you know what I mean though? But it wasn't like, it wasn't those things that made people say, well, look at him. Like, this is one of the most difficult struggles that people have is if that it is just so clear that Jesus is who he said he is, why are there so many people that aren't interested? The Jewish people themselves. I don't get why God would send a Messiah that the people of God would reject. That just doesn't make sense. Well, Isaiah prophesied, for he was despised and rejected by man. He was a man of sorrows, and he was acquainted with grief. And as one from whom we would hide our faces, he was despised and esteemed him not. But surely he has borne our griefs, and he has carried our sorrows. Yet, when we look at the cross Isaiah is describing here, not knowing that it's a cross, Yet we will esteem him, we will see him, understand him, we will reason him to be actually stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Now, this is kind of this major idea here. Um, The Jews crucified him. The Romans were complicit in this. They crucified him. The people cried out, crucify him, and cursed is anyone who hangs on the tree. So just to be fair, it kind of made sense that they would consider him to be cursed by God. He's getting what he deserves. Because if there's one thing we know about God is he can't hang God on a cross. If there's one thing we know about God is he would never take that kind of ridicule or rejection. That's why whenever you get some kind of debate between an atheist and, and someone who's trying to make a confession about Jesus Christ, you almost always get this, 
oh yeah, well if there's a God, why doesn't he just kill me now kind of speech. Oh yeah, well if there's a God, then how do you explain things that happen and you begin to list this long litany of difficult things? Make sure that as you do that, and maybe you're in the process of doing that in your own mind or with someone else this week, just do me a favor. Include the injustice of Jesus on the cross. Why would God ever let that happen? How would God ever let his son die on a cross that that should begin to awaken us to the plans and the purposes of God that just don't fit our A plus B equals chocolate. You know, I mean, it just doesn't seem to fit. Look at this, verse five, and here's this great um, interruption by God. I know he was smitten by him. For God so loved the world, he sent his son so that he might die so that we might have life. That's John three sixteen. Listen to that. God so loved us that he sent his son that he might die, that we might have life by believing in him. So the Bible speaks to this. But, he says, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement, was the rebuke, was the humiliation. Upon God, upon his servant, was placed all of these things. That just doesn't make sense. And it was this chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. That doesn't make sense. So by what he did, I get healing? No, 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 no. I've got to fix this. I've got to redeem this. What is my part in this? To receive. What is my part in terms of fixing this? It is to accept by faith God's plan, God's grace, God's mercy. God does not, in some kind of divine moment, just overlook your brokenness. He deals with it. He labels it. It is scarlet. It is crimson. And then he deals with it in Jesus Christ. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And then the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He, still speaking of Jesus, was oppressed. He was afflicted, and yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that was before the shearers silent, so he opened not his mouth. I mean, not only is that a prophecy, it's this amazing description. Next time you read through those final days where Jesus is in this, it seems like, combat with these religious people who are trying to kill him. And we don't understand why Jesus stands there silent. Pilate, confused, why are you silent? The people around him, why don't you give an answer? It could be a couple of reasons. Number one, there is no answer at this moment that you will take. You've ignored my teaching. You've ignored my miracles. You're ignoring the way of God. What could I possibly say now? There's another one. Like, this is God's plan that I would do this. I'm not trying to save my life. I'm trying to save yours, Jesus says in that moment. This is the prophecy of God. This is God's hand upon Isaiah the prophet as he is writing not just a temporary fix, repent and remember Sinai, but a permanent solution. Stop for a moment and just consider that God has a plan in the future that far exceeds all of our understanding. And what we need at this moment is not for us to reason. Even that idea of come let us reason together and then God speaks. I think the ultimate of that reasoning is not how do we get from crimson to white. But God, how do I just submit myself to a plan that doesn't seem to make human earthly sense? By faith. Jesus doesn't open his mouth. He doesn't try to save himself. Verse 8, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people, they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man. It's almost like this was written 50 years after the death of Jesus, not 600 years before. 
And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. And that is God's plan and that is God's purpose. And you and I now stand on the other side of the hill of Calvary. You and I stand on the other side of the empty tomb, on the other side of the enthronement of Jesus on high. And we are left to marvel at that. We are left in a moment here to hold in our hands two things that symbolize what this text promises and to just stop and not just try to figure it out, but to eat and drink, to consume, to be transformed, to be grateful, to be thankful. It's grace, it's a gift. Why would God do this? Because it's who he is. I mean, during moments like this, during weeks like this, there's so much that's being said about God's heart. And I just want to remind us that as we think about it or as we talk about it, please be sure to include the cross. Please be sure to include the true heart and nature and purpose of God that he who did not know of, of sin like in himself or brokenness in himself or exploitation in himself, he's not that kind of God, but he sees us being involved in that and then he empties himself so that he can redeem us. Here's how it continues in verse 10 of Isaiah 53. Yet it was the will of Yahweh to crush him. This is why when I love to preach about the crucifixion of Jesus and I love to ask the question, whose idea was this? It wasn't Satan's. It wasn't the Jewish people. It wasn't the Roman government. It was God. God's the one that did this. God's the one that orchestrated all of this. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand out of the crushing. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many. Look at this. I love this phrase. May may many, that's you and I, be accounted righteous, and he will bear their iniquity. And that is the gospel right there. Many are claimed as righteous because one received penalty. And therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. This, is, this goes back to that enthronement idea that Jesus, after he becomes victorious over death, after he has purchased us for himself, then he then shares the splendor of his victory. Divide the spoil with the strong because he has poured out his soul in death. He was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many, and he now makes intercession for the transgressors. Isaiah 53 is probably the clearest picture of the gospel in the Old Testament. And I just love that it comes at a time when Israel is maybe at that most undeserving. And I guess it's just good to be reminded they would never be deserving. And they would never be able to figure that out. And they would never be able to fix it. So God interjects, God interrupts, God stops and promises through this prophet. And you and I get to be a part of this. And I get to stop just like the Jewish people and go, what do you want from me, God? You just want me to be really sorry for what I did? I'm sorry! Is that what he wants? Well, God just really wants you to try better. What God desires at the very center of his heart is for you to know the fullness of who he is and his incredible love for you. His love for those who have been transgressed and for those who are transgressors because we are all both. Yeah, the older I get, I'm not surprised when people do bad things. When I go back to the gospel, I'm blown away that God never 
gives up. If you want me to, how do you know God doesn't give up? Well, can I tell you the story of Jesus? What he has done and what he's accomplished and what he is now doing is he is enthroned in the heavens. Do you understand? This is why we as a church become a people who are living in response to God's great love. Here's how Paul says it in Ephesians chapter two. I was asked this past week, can you give me just like 10 scriptures that a new believer needs to know? And I think this would be the top of all of my list. I'm not saying it's, it's the one that's just a no-brainer, but it's mine. Ephesians chapter two, verses one through 10. How we don't all have that memorized, I don't know. But I would strongly encourage you to memorize Ephesians chapter two, verses one through 10. It describes the brokenness of us. We are all by our nature, um, following our desires of our flesh. We all are objects of God's wrath. And then verse four interjects, like Isaiah 53 interjects, but but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, we have been saved, raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us. How? How did God show us kindness? What has God done for us lately? It's not just lately. It's actually eternally. He did it all in Messiah Jesus. And what it means to be Christian is to respond to that. I'm sure you have lots of questions about this week. And I'm sure that before we just kind of get back into our routine to get ready for the next time that it happens, it's going to be good for us to stop and say, okay, how do we prepare ourselves to respond to... Listen, God has already taken care of it all. In Jesus Christ. In Christ Jesus. And you and I get to sit here and to just receive it. So this time I'm going to ask those who are going to be serving this meal to head to the back. Uh, We are going to prepare to take it together. I want to strongly encourage you that as a follower of Jesus Christ that you will not just spend this time reflecting on kind of how difficult your week has been, Um, not just spending time reflecting on or considering how you can do better next week. We're not going to sit here and spend a few moments just kind of sitting there and thinking, you know what, last week I said 10 bad things, this week I'm going to try to say eight. But one of the best parts of the Lord's Supper is to truly stop and to just think, like this isn't about me, this is for me. And even when we say that, it's really not just for us, but it's God's gift to us for himself. Did you see what the text actually said? That God did all of this so that throughout eternity, the immeasurable greatness of his grace might be proclaimed. God will be and desires to be famous. Did you know that? That God will be, promise you, he will be, and he desires that. He desires for his greatness to be known. What about his greatness? Well, we can look at the stars and see the bigness of God. But really, the best picture of him Isaiah 53 promises. Matthew chapter 27 describes it's Jesus on the cross demonstrating his love to us. Let's pray. God, thank you for this time, this challenge and opportunity. And I pray, God, that we would um, take our hearts and our minds and give it to you fully. Thank you for your goodness revealed to us in Jesus. And it's in his name we pray, amen.
I don't know if you look for your name in the Bible, but it's right there in Isaiah 53. That the righteous one, his servant, makes the many righteous by bearing their iniquity. That makes the many. That's me and that's you. If you have received Jesus by faith, receive him now as you eat. And as you drink. God, you are good beyond all reason. You are good. So we give you thanks. Through Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Plates are going to be coming around. This is our opportunity to give back to the mission of God so that the world might know who Jesus Christ is. And so that's why we give, and that's why we give joyfully out of the abundance of what God has given to us. As the servers pass the uh, trays around, I want to prepare us for our time of corporate prayer. I'm sure many of you have noticed, but in your bulletins, just underneath the sermon notes there, there's a spot that says, Praying Together This Week For. And it is our ever-deepening conviction that the health and the power of this church is intrinsically tied up in our prayers. And each week, I hope that we will, around certain subjects, around certain topics or needs, gather together in prayer, not just now, but throughout the week. So I encourage you to write some of these things down on your bulletin or, or type them in a note on your phone and as you're led or as it seems appropriate this week to pray for these things with the rest of us. And there are two things I want to offer up as a suggestion. One, obviously, a week ago, something tragic took place in Las Vegas. And there are families that are hurting, and there are many first responders who are now dealing with the trauma and the aftermath, and there, there's tons of pain in that city. And this morning, there's churches in that city having to answer very difficult questions. There's ministry teams that are having to answer complicated questions. There are congregations that are just dumbstruck. And we need to pray for them. Before we offer an answer as to what the problem might be, before we start to pontificate on what needs to happen going forward, I believe the call for Christians is to empathize with the hurting, to mourn with those that mourn to just cry together and then to offer hope. The second thing I want you to pray for is for compassion. Pray for compassion as an organization. Pray for our relationship as a church with compassion in these specific communities. And pray for these kids, these little boys and little girls who money will not solve their ultimate problems. They need Jesus. But if we need to offer empathy to those who are hurting, there are other areas where we can make a difference in action. And maybe the overflow of our wealth 
can alleviate some obstacles in the lives of others who are much less fortunate than you and I, such that they can hear the gospel. Pray for those things this week, and, and I actually want to pray for those things right now. So if you wouldn't mind standing up, and, uh, and we'll pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that your name would be made famous, that you would be rightly recognized for who you are, and that you would be rightly worshipped. And I pray that as we respond to tragedies and to the brokenness of this world, that we would keep those ends in mind, your worship and your adoration. It's in the context of deep, deep darkness and depravity that the world looks at us and says, where is your God? And it's in that context that many times we ask the same question. But God, remind us that in your goodness, in your sovereignty, you need no defense. You are complete, you are perfect, and you are kind and loving. And you are just, and we beg you to rain down your justice on this place because you are a very real and active God that cares about your people and cares about your creation. So we beg you to act. God, it is with all sincerity that we ask you to come back quickly. You've purchased redemption. Now finish the project of restoration. Set everything to rights, Lord. Come back quickly and vindicate your church. Come back quickly and vindicate your saints. Vindicate your bride, your righteous ones. And come back quickly and punish wickedness and punish the evildoers. God, we know that these things will happen and in that we place our hope. And we beg you, to do it. We know our salvation is secure. We know you are the firm foundation. And God, we trust you to do what is right. And we trust you to use us, to use your church, to enact your will on earth as it is in heaven. And God, it is with all sincerity that we say, glory be to the Father, and glory to the Son, and glory to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, as it is now, and as it will forever be. And we can ask you things in the beautiful, wonderful, marvelous name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, I want to introduce you to a young man. Um, I'd like to call him my friend. Uh, we have just met a few times, though. Yeah, grab that one, Jonathan. Yeah. Uh, this is Jonathan, and he is from the Dominican Republic. He uh, works with Compassion, and he is actually going to be sharing his story, his testimony. He is going to be encouraging us not only to get more involved with Compassion that you see everywhere, but more than that, but to be involved in the discipleship of young children for the glory of God. And so, Jonathan, Ma'am. I'll leave it with Ma'am. you. Thank you, Jim. It's been a joy to be to be here uh, in Oklahoma, and it's been a joy to worship uh, God together with you. Uh, so my name is Jonathan, as Jim was saying, and basically I just want to share a little bit about my my story, just for you to let you know that I was one of those, like one of those children here, and when I see this picture, uh, it makes me see how my sponsor actually picked my package and sponsored me many years ago, uh, 1997, which was the, the year when I got into the Compassion Program. But, uh, you know, I grew up in a ghetto area, in a community surrounded by, by drugs and prostitution and all of that. And, and growing in, in that environment, uh, I, I always said, poverty has to do more with roving children's hope, more than lacking food or clothes, and things like that. Uh, it's, it's the hope that you don't have. Growing up, watching those examples, you, you eventually think that you have to become like them. 
And so I remember that uh, one of the things for me and how poverty looks like was one day that I had, I wanted to go to school. And so in order to attend school in the DI, you need a uniform. Both reasons for that, security, and on the other hand, children don't have enough clothes to go to school with clothes like that. So the government fixed the situation providing a uniform. You need a uniform in order to get into uh, school. And so I didn't have one, and I had to ask uh, someone in my neighborhood to lend me his uniform for me to attend school in the morning. I will run back home and give the uniform back for him to go to school in the afternoon. That was, that was crazy. Uh, but that's the way I could you know, afford education. It was free back, ta- back, back then, thanks God. But the, the other thing that I was facing was my shoes were all the time broken. And, and when I say broken, we, I have holes down here in my shoes. And that's why I say I faced bullying before the bullying work was invented. And the reason for that is because I went to school and I didn't want to walk like normal people do. I had to walk like a robot. Have you seen a robot walking? It's like that. Because when you walk, when you normally walk, people can see down here. And so I didn't want my friends to see the holes down my shoes. Something that I used to do in order to protect my, my feet was to make like, take cardboard, like a box, and make soles to put it inside the shoes. And by that way, I will protect my, my, my foot from, from the weather. For example, if it, if it was raining, it got wet. Uh, that's, that's why I hate rain for a while. Uh, but if, if, if it was hot as well, I would protect my, my feet as well. And the thing is, one day, my shoes got broken here. And when the DR says, hungry, hungry shoes, you say, talky shoes. They started to talk, or they were hungry. I talked my mom, I told, I told my mom, and I was thinking like, Okay, I'm not going to school, but you got to tape and put a tape over the shoes. And I had to go to school with that situation, and you, you can imagine the bullying that I had to face. After that, it's not that I hate my mom. I mean, she's a dictator mom. I, I don't hate her, but I almost hate her back then. And, but I understand now, like, she wants me to go and grab, you know, to get education and, and to succeed in life. Now I understand. Back then I had to ask forgiveness from God for her. <laughs> but, the, but, but when you are a child, you don't understand poverty. I, I say all of this because that's like normal life. You don't have a toy, you make a toy. You, you grab a bottle of water and, and, and you make a car out of that. You, you, try, you, you have to be creative. And so I remember that, that the day I, I started to see poverty in my life was one day that I was walking to school. I was arriving and it was like 100 Fahrenheit. It was really hot. Like, I don't know the summer here, but that was crazy. And, Getting, uh, arriving to school, I started sweating and feeling cold at the same time. And so I understood something is not going well because I, I, I cannot be sweating, but at the same time feeling cold and weak. So when I got to school, the teacher gave me a cookie. I ate the cookie and suddenly I was okay again. I couldn't understand that my sugar level was coming down because I didn't have food the day before. Sometimes I will spend day just having one meal a day. But I couldn't understand that, what was happening in my, in my body. And for me, that was normal. That's why when I got back home that day, my mother had a headache, and I bought a cookie. I gave her a cookie. Because if cookie can heal that that I was going through, cookies can heal headaches, stomach aches, flu, whatever. You know, and so that's, that's, that's a way. We, we, children in poverty, they don't understand what they are going through. And many of the things, I, I get the opportunity to, to share my story as well with teenagers in the DR uh, from the Compassion Program, just to motivate them and to see God through my story. And one of the things that I tell them is that I, I used to be a diver. And they always ask me, like, if there are sharks, like white sharks in, in, in the Caribbean Sea, 
And I tell them, like, there are. I'm not very sure, but I have never seen one because I used to be a diver in a dump area. I used to go to basically look for plastic, do a recycle, resell it, and buy some bread and chocolate. Another of the jobs that I had to do was selling juice on the streets with my mom, and by that way, we will make some money, again, for buying just food. That's material poverty, and, and that's really hard. But poverty is not just lacking clothes or food. Poverty also has to do with emotional things. And, and in my case, was not having a father in my house. Uh, my father and I, we had a very, very strange relationship. I always say it was a FBI relationship. Like, I will meet him uh, once a month, five minutes, for 18 years. And every time we will meet in a different place. And I never understood why my father called me and asked me to wait for him in a different street and corner and area. And till one day my mom told me, now is your time to meet your father's family. It makes sense for me back then, I was 14 years old, because she... Uh, sent me with some of my father's brother, and I met his family. He's, he has a wife and four daughters. And then I understood talking to them that they didn't know anything about me. And so now it makes sense for me why we used to meet five minutes every month in a different place. It was like he tried to hide me from his family. But by God's grace, they, 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 some of them are Christians, and they received me with so much joy. They were very happy that I am the king, the only boy. Uh, but on the other hand, they were sad that they realized 14 years after that they have a brother, for example, or his wife that she has a son, and she didn't know. Nine months after, I never talked to my father, and he came to, to my house. I got into the car, and he asked me why you did that. And, and I said, why I did what? He told me, you met my family without my permission. Uh, and then I understood what he was talking about. It seems like they have a conversation about that. That's when I said, I'm so happy about your family. And, and I'm, it's a joy to meet Noelia. And I started to name my sisters. And he said, wait a minute, neither you or my brothers have the permission to get involved in my life. You have to understand that you're a mistake in my life. 14 years old. And when you're 14 years old, you're not expecting your father to say that. Because you're starting to create uh, your personality. You don't have identity. And when you, when you listen that kind of words, really, you know, crash you. And, 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 and I remember that I started crying and like five hours after that I was crying. And I started to hate him. And for six months, we didn't have any relationship. And I, when I share this for you, it's for you to see that poverty is very complex. It involves everything of a child. And that's why I want to share with you about some of the letters that my sponsor write me. When I got into the Compassion Program, suddenly the first thing that I remember is that my mom heard that there was a church in the community helping children, serving children. And my mom apply for me, I got into the program, and suddenly I have a uniform. I don't have to ask anymore the guy of the uniform, now I have a uniform. And then also they bought me shoes, and I have food every day. And things started to change in my life, like it was crazy. And so one day I remember that I received a letter from a woman called Jamie, she's from Michigan. And then all this letter I was sharing later that started to come out like from Narnia. Have you seen Narnia? Like letters were coming out from a closet because <laughs> letters, 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 letters. And then these women that I don't know is writing me letters suddenly and I couldn't understand what was happening, but it really impact my life. This is Jamie, one of Jamie's first letters. When sponsors ask like uh, what to write in a letter, sometimes I, I have talked to sponsors that says, should I write a book, like a long five-paragraph letter? You don't have to. Uh, in fact, Jamie, for me, is the best example of letter writing. And look at this letter. She said, good afternoon, Jonathan. I wanted to send you a little note to let you know that I was thinking about you. Small note at her office that day, she was thinking about me. 
This is not a simple letter. And th this is how letter writing changed the life of your child. I know that you might gonna be thinking, you, need, you, you, you guys want us to pay, you want the money, but you want us to, also to write letters? I'm so busy, come on. You know, it's, it's, the money's great. You know, it's, 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 it's gonna be awesome if you go out and sponsor a child. But the emotional factor is the most important one. I'm gonna explain later about that, but if you take the chance to actually write these letters, you're gonna actually change the life of a child for eternity. I'm gonna show you why, how. The next letter, for example, this letter say, hello, Jonathan, happy 15th birthday. I hope you had a very enjoyable birthday. So let's stop for a minute. This letter is not a simple happy birthday letter. Jamie from Michigan, thousands of kilometers away, remember my birthday, September 8th. And she took the time to write. My father was a few months away from me and have never called me for a birthday. But these women wrote me a letter. Uh, if you go to the fourth uh, sentence, she say, I actually started back to college this year. Jamie, when she sponsored me, she was 26. She was a college student. And here is the question. So sometimes college students think like, man, I have so many things going on in my life now. I hardly can eat. But because of the budget, it's, I, I was a student as well. I do understand that. But Jamie, I don't know what she had to do. Maybe she, I remember that she told me she wanted to buy a car and she stopped it because she wanted to sponsor me. And sometimes we, we have to measure what's more important in life. Third letter came two months after my father, my father told me that I was a mistake. Greeting Jonathan from Michigan. If I show you all the letters of Jamie, she always say greetings from Michigan. She should be very proud about Michigan. We receive, you can do that if you are proud of Oklahoma. We receive our first dusting of snow today on Thanksgiving, which I didn't know what was that. But you guys write about what Thanksgiving is and all your fatties and all of that. Today is a great day to reflect on all the things that I'm thankful for, and you're one of those that I'm greatly thankful for. Two months after my father told me that I was a mistake, this woman from Michigan, thousands of kilometers away, told me, you are important for God. I'm thankful for you. I'm greatly thankful, and you're one of the greatest blessings in my life. Through letter writing, you can actually make a disciple of Christ. That's what I'm trying to say with my letters. And in fact, I have here 15 years of communication through letter writing with Jamie, and I'm 27, I am married, I, I'm having a boy this coming December, and I still have all my letters. I keep them safe from hurricanes, from uh, raining seasons, and, and still I have it in my house and I go over them. You know what, because through letter writing, you actually can make a disciple. And if you don't believe me, if you go to your Bible in the New Testament, there are 20 books, I mean 20 letters written to churches from Paul, from Peter, from John, to the churches back then in the new birth church. And half of the New Testament, in fact, are letters. And so through these letters, even today, we as followers of Christ remain in our faith. We find Paul saying to the young pastor Timothy, remain in the truth of the gospel. Or we find Peter writing to the churches, remain, again, remain in the truth of the gospel. And I can find Jamie saying, remember that there is a savior that you need and that is Jesus. And he's your father and he's gonna take care of you. He have always take care of you even though your father thinks that he's a mistake. Jesus will gonna take you in his arms and he's gonna love you. So letter writing and this opportunity that God is opening for us today, it goes beyond than $38 a month. It's about making a disciple. And I really love that you are serious about that, about doing disciple for Christ. I want to share a story with you because I, I uh, work for Compassion and in the DR, and my job is basically help pastors, churches, donors, students who come to the DR to see the work of Compassion. My job is to help them understand 
what, what do we do? What do we do and, and how it works? So that day, some, some of the things that we do is we do VVS. And so right there you can see a picture of some of the students playing with some of the sponsored children inside of the church. And that day, I decided not to be looking the logistics, but maybe to enjoy a little bit the program that I never does because I have, I'm busy going to the next step. So that day, I just started to take pictures. And look at this beautiful girl doing bubbles. How simple life is when you're a child. Or this boy help playing with, with this guy, with this student. And in the back, there are two students playing with the baby. Let's keep going. Yeah. And, and this, this, this little boy, he's just like one year old. And he's drinking that water like if it will be milk. For some reason, I was coming down. And I realized like there was children on the other side of the door. Like there were children gathering together in the doors of the church, and, and they couldn't go in. I took this picture just to show that there are as many children inside that the many children as, as the children outside. And those women in the right, those are tutors who are taking control of the gate, making sure who goes in and who will stay out. And of course, those children seen are sponsored children from Compassion. Okay, these girls, I was doing clown faces, silly faces, all kinds of faces to, to make them happy. But they, they didn't smile because they were saying like, come on, man, do something and let us in. We, we don't want to, don't, don't, don't be a clown. Like be, be a hero and let us in. And so I took another picture. And if you see this, nobody realized what was happening. Everybody was having fun inside with the music, playing. But nobody realized that there were children on the other side of the door. By mistake, I took this picture, and when I try trying to erase the picture, I realized those are those those were children. And and yes, when I get closer, those are children on the other side of the door. This picture really made me sad because the guy in the right, he's smiling. If you see his face, he he's smiling. For him, it's enough just to see and to have fun. He doesn't have to be inside. He's he's having fun from the outside. But it really broke my heart to see that because I, I used to be one of those children on the other side of the door. Of course, I didn't know the story of those children, but I'm very sure it's one like mine. I went out and took a picture of them. You can keep going. And they, they didn't even realize that I took that picture. And you can see them. They are gathering there, seeing through the holes what's happening inside without getting in. And that's when I saw Victoria. Her name is Victoria. And I couldn't wait anymore and find a way, some corrupted situation there, and I got them all in. I pay the, the girl in the gate and get them all in. Okay, so uh, after that, I, I, I called the pastor of the church. We, we're very careful as compassion because we're partners of the local church. Again, when you sponsor a child, it's not compassion. It's not a compassion center in, in terms of compassion branding in the church. It's actually the church, the one who does the work with the children. When you sponsor a child, you're actually supporting a child. It's, it's global mission, and, it's, and it is discipleship. And so I talk the, I, call, I call the pastor, and I say, hey, pastor, we shouldn't do that. In fact, if you guys don't have the money to provide food for all those children, I'm willing to pay. I'm going to pay for their breakfast, but we shouldn't have children on, on the outside while we have this event inside. And he looked at me smiling, which made me angry, and he said, you know what, Jonathan, let's go to the kitchen. So we went to the kitchen, and the kitchen was full of food, breakfast, a lot of snacks. And, and he said, those children inside already have breakfast, right? And I said, yes. Uh, okay, you know for... What's the reason of this breakfast in the kitchen? And I say, no. And he said, you know, Jonathan, he, he became serious. And he said, you guys help us serve around 400 children through compassion, through a sponsorship. But I wanted to let you know that we're not the church of the sponsored children. We are the church of the children of this community. We're waiting for you guys to finish your program and to do your home visits. And when you finish, we're going to have all those children go in because those children are not sponsored children. 
And we as a church not only serve 400 children through compassion, we serve 450 more children without sponsorship because we are the church of the children. In total, we serve 850 children in this community. Instead of leaving this place hopeless, I left that church hopeful. Because even though we left, those, those students left, and, and, and we went back to our daily life, our complicated life, this church remained there for the children of that community. And that's why I'm trying to tell you through my story and through this, that sponsoring a child is not just a, taking these beautiful little children and have the picture in the refrigerator of your house. You're actually spreading the gospel of Christ all around. You can make an, such an impact in these children's life as Jamie did to me. Because Jamie said one day, I never imagined that I would make such an impact in someone's life. Back then when I was a college student, and now that I am a mom, I was just, I'm, I'm just simple and mom. And, and look at you. I want to tell you just to finish that. I called my father and asked his forgiveness to be a mistake. And seriously, I, I told him, like, you have to admit, this is the best mistake you have ever made in your life. I wish mistakes can end up like, like, like I end up being. And so, and, and, and why? If you ask me, who changed my life? Of course it was Christ, but it was through the local church. It was through my pastor, through my tutor who told me, you know what, Jonathan, the, the Bible said, honor your father and your mother. It doesn't say honor them if they love you. Honor them if they feel proud of you. It says honor them because I love you first. And then on the other hand, these women called Jamie from Michigan, writing letters and pouring out the love of Christ in my life. You can make that impact today when you go out. You can actually make a disciple of Christ and end up the cycle of poverty in these children's lives. And today, I, as I told you, I'm working for Compassion, very busy there, doing some great work with teenagers, exposing, exposing them to the gospel. And I have the privilege and the joy now to be a proclaimer of God. Uh, soon I'll be planting a church in the DR. I'll have to come here to do some training. Would you imagine that the guy walking with the hole in his shoes or working in a dumb side area or uh, selling juice on the streets with the father who says that he is a mistake would be soon a father? And I'm going to make sure, people might going to say to my boy, he's a mistake, but I'm going to make sure his father doesn't say that. I'm going to let him know that I'm proud of him. Today you're going to sponsor a child, and I hope and I pray for that. And maybe your child is going to be the president one day of their nation. But maybe your child is going to be the father that he has never had. And that's my prayer for you. Can we pray? Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for the great opportunity that you have given us and for your grace and for your love and your forgiveness. Thank you for these brothers and sisters and this congregation. Thank you for Pastor Jim and all the staff here. Thank you, Lord, for the call for Sunnybrook to spread, spread the gospel of Christ, but, but thank you for their heart and the passion, not just for reaching those in need, those in poverty, but also to give them the best gift that any human being can have, which is your love, which is the gospel, which is Jesus Christ. And my prayer today, Lord, is that may we, as we go out, uh, out of the church, we, we can go out, grab a package, and not just see this as, as a paper. We're talking about a life of a person that is now struggling and going through a situation, but through our support, through our letters, through our prayers, we can make a disciple of you. We can be intentional in letter writing. We can be intentional in exposing the gospel to these little children, the least of these, but the ones that you love and the ones that you want us to reach. So thank you this morning for the sermon. Thank you this morning for your love. Thank you for everything that you have given to us. Thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, we pray. So my prayer is that you go out and you give grace. As Pastor Jim was saying, we receive grace, but you don't keep grace for you. You share it with others. So may God bless you. I'm going to be outside. Some people from, from the church is going to be there just 
helping you out. And my prayer is that you don't go out to your house without sponsoring a child. God bless you, and thank you for the opportunity. Okay, we can, we can, this is the end, not the end of the work, but the end of the service. God bless you. Bye-bye.